what does it mean to dwell in the shelter of the Most High? And what does it mean to live in the Lord's secret place? And what does it mean to abide in the shadow of the Almighty? Is this just poetry? Is this just flowery language? Or is this something that's purely in the future and you can't experience in this world? Or is there a way for a person to actually do this every single day? Because in a world where peace is difficult to find, I have to tell you that my soul is desperate to know that this is tangible. I am desperate to know if this is real. If I can live in the presence of God and find their peace daily, well then I, I want to know how to do that. And as we come to the end of 2023, a year that has been plenty hard for many of you, I can look in your eyes as your pastor and know that you are also desperate for this. You are desperate to know if there's a place that you can go and you can stay in and your soul can be content in God and you can have peace. And so Psalm 91 is where we are at this morning. It's a song that never mentions peace by name but tells us exactly where we can find it. As we look to Psalm 91 in our Bibles, you will notice that there is no historical setting for the psalm. It's not attributed to an author. However, Jewish tradition holds that this psalm is penned by the same man who penned Psalm 90, the prophet Moses. Charles Spurgeon believed that Moses actually wrote this psalm after the incident with the fiery serpents in the wilderness. If you're not familiar with that passage of scripture, God sends fiery serpents among his people as they are trekking through the wilderness because they are groaning against him, they are complaining against him, and many of them are are bit and they die. And the only way for people to not die when they are bit is to look at the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Any time that they would look at the bronze serpent, they would live. I tend to agree with Charles Spurgeon that this is written by Moses, and it is written by Moses after that incident, considering the language of the psalm. And with him speaking of the secret place, it's quite possible that Moses wrote this after meeting with the Lord in the tabernacle a short time after the incident with the serpents, and he is reflecting on God's grace and God's mercy toward his people despite the abundance of their sin. Regardless of whether or not you think Moses wrote the psalm, I think the references to Israel's wilderness experience are strong. I think there are strong parallels. This is a psalm that speaks of political enemies and references warfare. And Israel had enemies in the wilderness, like the Amalekites. This is a psalm that mentions peril. And they certainly experienced peril. Peril from the climate, peril from nature, peril from a lack of water. Moses in Deuteronomy 8.15 says that the Lord led them through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, and that the Lord brought water out of the flinty rock. 
There's lots of talks of plagues and pestilence, which makes sense because this generation of Israelites in the wilderness, they have just seen what God did to Egypt with their own eyes. They have seen the pestilence, they have seen the plagues that he can bring down upon a people in judgment. From verses 5 to 13, we will see plenty of words that remind us of what Israel faced during this time of testing. But of course, it's not the only time of testing in the wilderness that we should think of when we read Psalm 91, because when we get down to verses 11 and 12, we will see the only scripture that is quoted by the devil in the entire Bible. It's the words that he tried to use to get Jesus to test his father. He twisted scripture in Jesus' wilderness temptation in an attempt to see God's son fail in his time of testing hoping that he would crumble like Moses' generation before him. But in the end, the Son of God stood firm, and he is the key to the entire psalm. The first two verses of this psalm give us four names of God. He is the Most High, El Elyon. He is the Almighty, El Shaddai. He is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. He is my God, Elohim. And anyone, rich or poor, uh, great or small, male or female, who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of this God, of the Almighty. This is the promise to us, and it's a promise with a condition. If you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, then you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Many of you will give conditions like that this, uh, this week with your children. If you eat your dinner, then you can have some of these Christmas cookies that we made. We, as parents, understand if-then conditional promises. And that's what we have here. If you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, then you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The Hebrew word for shelter can be translated as secret or secrecy, uh, secrecy, which is why the King James Version of the Bible translates this as, he dwelleth in the secret place. He that dwelleth in the secret place. This is likely a reference to the innermost part of the tent of meeting, the sanctuary of the tabernacle. The Psalms regularly refer to the place God dwells in the tabernacle or in the temple in Jerusalem as a refuge for the people of God as they go to draw near to him there. And whoever would dwell there in the secret place will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. But the abiding in the Almighty's shadow only occurs if we dwell in the secret place. To dwell is to remain. It means that you live somewhere with constancy. The President of the United States of America dwells at the White House. The New York Yankees dwell in the Bronx. I dwell in Seaford. And the word carries with it a sense of being settled. No moves foreseen. Now you might say, I want that. I want to dwell in the secret place of the Lord, and I want to remain there. I hope your soul cries out as you hear that and goes, how do I do that? Well, first of all, you have to know how to get into the secret place. And I will tell you that the key to the door of the Lord's secret place is His Son, Jesus Christ. 
because there is only one mediator between God and man. For a sinner like me or you to enter into the secret place of the Lord, we must be holy, meaning our sin must somehow be atoned for. It must be cast away. And while there was a time that the blood of bulls and goats were shed, that was just a shadow of what was to come. There was no power in the Old Testament sacrifices to save. The old covenant worshipers like Moses made sacrifice in obedience to the Lord's instructions, trusting in his grace and looking forward to a Messiah to come. But now we are celebrating this morning that that Messiah has been born to us. He is the incarnate Lord, lowly in a manger, born to die for sin, a lamb predestined from the foundation of the world to be sacrificed. And he lived a perfect life, and he died an atoning death to reconcile you to God, born that men no more may die. And he is our great high priest. The book of Hebrews describes it this way. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace is the secret place. The throne of grace is the shelter of the Most High. What was in the tabernacle was just a copy of the greater sanctuary in heaven, the place that Christ ushers us into by his blood every time we come to him in prayer. So then, how do you get into the secret place? What is the key? How do you start dwelling there? You go in through Jesus Christ. You go in through faith in the Son of God, who is the only way to the Father. John 14, verses 6 and 7, Jesus, speaking to his troubled disciples, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. To enter into the secret place is to know the Father through the Son. To know the Father is to trust in his Son, Jesus Christ, and to have your faith credited to you as righteousness. So that when God looks upon you, he no longer sees your sin and has been atoned for. It has been cast as far as the east is from the west. To know the Father is to enter into the secret place wearing a robe of righteousness provided by Jesus. Who wore your robe of sin as if it was his own. To know the Father is to trust the Son with saving faith. And this is why verse 2 says, I will say to the Lord, to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You come into the secret place by faith in the Son of God who is your refuge and fortress. You come in by being justified by the blood of Christ. But as glorious as this doctrine of justification by faith alone is, 
That's just the key to enter into the secret place. We can't forget what the psalm says. It's he who dwells. And so the question is, how do we remain in the secret place? Well, the answer is the same as the answer of how do we get in, of course. The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go to his words in John 15. Here's what he says to us. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jim Hamilton commenting on this says, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to relate to Jesus in the same way that a branch relates to the vine. Jesus explains this in verse 5, saying that those who abide in him will bear much fruit, while apart from him, his followers can do nothing. Sever the connection between branch and vine, and there will be no fruit. Sever the connection between the Christian and Christ, there will be no Christ-likeness. And so we must stay in close relationship to the Son to abide in the secret place. And Psalm 91 gives us clues as to what this looks like. And incredibly, those clues are right in line with what we find in John 15. First of all, if we are to dwell, then we must hold fast to God in love. You see this in verse 14. Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him must hold fast to God in love. What does this mean to hold fast to him in love? Well, let's go back to Jesus in, in John 15. This time, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so, to remain in the love of Jesus is to keep the commandments of Jesus. You want to abide in Him? Obey His word. When I walked to the dining hall at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, which the walk there was the best part, if you've ever eaten at the dining hall at Virginia Commonwealth University, especially my freshman year, if you've been around VCU at all, you would have known the name Hibbs Dining Hall. And you steered clear unless you had to go. But on the way to the dining hall, I would pass by the Cathedral of the Sacred Heart across from Monroe Park. And looking up across the front of the building in giant letters, it said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. This is one of the ways we remain in Christ. We hear his word. We believe it. And we obey it. We trust in his word and we demonstrate that trust in obedience. This does not earn us salvation. Instead, it's proof that salvation has come to us. Those who dwell in the secret place are those who trust and obey the word of God. And no one has modeled this for us better than Jesus. We talk about Christ in the wilderness. He showed us in the wilderness temptation what it looks like to dwell in the secret place. He modeled it for us. Matthew 4, 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12 to Jesus, but in typical satanic fashion, he butchers the word of God. You ever hear a false teacher who is speaking lies, but sometimes it's confusing because like, well, they're saying things that are from the Bible, but it's, it's, it's not quite biblical, is it? That's them twisting the word of God. And, and the force behind that is evil. It's satanic. That's what's behind false teaching. This is what Satan loves to do, is to twist the word of God and to try to counterfeit it. It's what he did with Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say? And so here, he slices and dices God's word. He twists it. He offers a counterfeit to Jesus. It worked with the first Adam, so he's going to try it out on the second Adam. What Satan leaves out is to guard you in all your ways. He just leaves that out. Now, why would he leave that out? Because he knows it's the qualifier. See, verses 11 and 12 are amazing. These are two amazing verses from the Bible. What they explain to us is the sort of spiritual warfare that's going on around us at all times. Angels, not singular, but plural, are guarding us. They are watching over our lives and guarding us. God is dispatching his legions of angelic servants to protect his people. Guarding us from physical danger. Because God has numbered our days and he's not going to have a loose stone take our life and our climb up the, the, the narrow road before it's our time. We will go when it is our time and not before and not after. And the angels guard us from physical danger that would seek to take our life before God says now. But they also guard us from spiritual danger. Those stumbling blocks that could cause us to trip as we progress up the narrow road. But the verse is not a promise that you can go and live like a moral fool and God will protect you. It's not a promise that I can go drive the wrong way down 64 East, going 100 miles an hour and nothing will happen to me. You say, no, that's what a foolish decision an immoral decision because you're endangering others and you're endangering the life that God has given you and it's a foolish decision because it's not going to work out well. You're setting yourself up for disaster and destruction. So no, you can't go and live like a fool and disobey God and do things that are contrary to his word and think that, well, the angels will guard me. This is a promise to those who commit their way to the Lord. This is a promise for those who trust not in their own understanding. And as they go about God's way in their ways, the Lord is protecting them. And Satan, he tempts Jesus to circumvent the suffering of his life and his death. 
He tempts him to gain glory through the testing of God by going a way that is not God's way. But Jesus knows the verse. He's the word made flesh. Of course he knows the verse. So what does he do? He holds fast to his father in love by trusting in his father's word and obeying it. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He commits his way to the father And what happens with Jesus in the end? After he is obedient, after Satan leaves him, after he conquers, the angels do indeed bear him up. Not because he gave in, not because he tested God, they bear him up because he holds fast and he is committed to the will of his Father. Matthew 4.11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus shows us the truth of James chapter 4, verse 8, live and in action. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. When you hold fast to the Word of the Lord in the secret place, the Lord of the Word holds you. He delivers you. He protects you as one who knows His name. You see that in verse 14 as well. Abide in his love by trusting and obeying the word and you will dwell in the secret place. Number two, if we are to dwell, we must not only hold fast to God in love through his word and obedience to it, but we must call out to God in prayer. And we see this in verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. Those who dwell in the secret place pray at the throne of grace. They entreat the Most High with confidence. And again, Jesus also emphasizes this in John 15 as a part of remaining in Him. If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Those who hold fast to the Lord through His Word will also pray according to His Word. This is part of what it looks like to dwell in the secret place. When you abide in Christ, you will desire what He desires. Salvation of the nations, the gospel to reach every shore, the advance of the local church, His name to be counted as holy. And so you begin to pray according to those desires. And Jesus is saying that God will answer these prayers because they are in accordance with His will and His word. And so He will honor us by granting our requests. So then this is remaining in the secret place 101. Holding fast in love through the word, calling out in prayer. And if you hold fast, and if you call out, the promise of Psalm 91 verse 1 is that you will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now what does that mean? Well, a shadow is very personal. If you wanted to walk in my shadow, you would have to be at my side. I can't walk in your shadow from a long way off. I'd have to be right next to you or behind you or in front of you, depending on the time of day. The bottom line is, is if you are in someone's shadow, then you are in their presence. You ever heard somebody say, well, about a son, he can't get out of his father's shadow? Just too close to him to be able to get out from under it. 
And so, if we are in the shadow of the Almighty, we are in His presence. And the great promise of Psalm 91 is that if you hold fast to the Lord through the Word and you call out to Him, dwelling in the secret place, then you will abide in the presence of the Lord. I'm not talking about the future. We know That when the Lord Jesus returns and all of our imperfections are burned away in the fires of his judgment, we will then go and be with him and dwell with him under his rule and reign on the new earth forever. We will be in his presence all the time for the rest of eternity. We long for that, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what you can do today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after. I'm talking about right now. This is a promise that if you dwell in the secret place, holding fast to the word, calling out, you abide in the presence of the Lord. The Hebrew word for abide literally means to spend the night. Often translates to lodge. Now when you lodge somewhere, you stay there, right? Nobody pays for a hotel and then leaves and doesn't come back. Nobody drops their luggage off and then goes and stays in a different hotel. No. You stay at that place if you're lodging at that place. It's a synonym of dwell. If you remain in the secret place, you remain in his presence. If you remain in his shelter, you remain in his shadow. And there are great benefits that come with the blessing of God's abiding presence. And they're all throughout this psalm. Number one, God will be your defender and your protector. He will be a refuge to you, a hiding place. You see this in verse 2 and in verse 9. He will be your fortress, a strong tower that you find safety in. You see this in verse 2. His faithfulness or his trustworthiness will defend you like a shield and a buckler. And if you don't know what a buckler is, it's just a smaller shield that you wear on the forearm. He will cover you with the feathers of his wings, with his pinions, and keep you safe. The pinions are the part of the the bird's wing that has the most feathers on it, and the mother eagle uses them to cover her eaglets from predators and from precipitation that would fall. And you will find refuge there. God actually chooses to be known by the word refuge three different times in this psalm. Not once, not twice, three different times the word refuge is used because the Lord wants us to know, stop running to all the makeshift lean-to refuges that we settle for in this world. He's saying, run to me. Come to me. Stop it with these broken cisterns. Verse 10, he will keep the plagues like the ones that Egypt received in judgment that the Israelites saw with their own eyes. He will keep those plagues from touching your tent. We've already seen in verses 11 and 12, he will guard you with his angels. And in verse 14, he will protect you because you know him personally. He will be your defender. He will be your protector. God will also be your deliverer. We see this in verse 3 and in verse 14. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. There are hypocrites, there are enemies of the church, and there's Satan himself who will look to trap you like a hunter traps a bird. 
Thomas Watson says Satan loves to take people and put a falconer's hood on them and blind them so that they can't see. Well, the Lord keeps your feet from the falconer's hand, keeps your eyes from the falconer's hood, keeps deception off the eyes of your heart. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He will deliver you from pestilence. You see in verse 3, pestilence is deadly disease, pervasive plague. Again, like what Israel saw in Egypt. And he will deliver his people from these things. He will be your deliverer. He will also be your fear destroyer. See this in verses 5 and 6. There are four times of day mentioned in these two verses. Night, day, darkness or evening, and noonday. These were the four divisions of the Jewish clock. They took a clock and they just cut it up into quarters. And the psalmist is saying here, Moses is saying here, in each part of the day, be it terrors by night or arrows by light, you will not be afraid. Disease and destruction may come, but he will see to it that your fear is driven back and defeated. He will be your avenger in verse 8. He's the one who will make all things right. He will see to it that those who dwell in the secret place will see justice in the end. Your eyes will see the comeuppance of the wicked. He is our Emmanuel in verse 15. He is with us in trouble. This is the nature of God, to come to his people when they are in trouble. And there is no greater example of this than when Emmanuel, God with us, came to earth to be with us in our trouble, born in Bethlehem, overcoming it, walking out of an empty grave in Jerusalem. And God will be your Savior. We see this in verses 15 and 16. He is a rescue to sinners. He reveals salvation through his Son. See, in verse 16, I will show him my salvation. We have been shown the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And with long life, I will satisfy him. He gives eternal life. All of this is experienced by those who live in his shadow. If you dwell in the secret place, these are the blessings that you will find in his presence. But we have to make sure that we apply all of this rightly. I hope that you hear this and you desire to dwell so that you may abide daily in the secret place. I hope you want that with everything that you are. But we have to be careful because we could read this and we could think that God is promising us a life that is free from trouble. And wouldn't that be confusing? Because we are not living lives free of trouble. So if we're not living lives free of trouble, we might be led to think, well, am I not dwelling in the secret place? I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying. Do I not have enough faith as I hold fast and I call out? If only I had more faith, would I see more prosperity? It's all kinds of guys on your TV who tell you that garbage. So we've got to be careful here to avoid that. There are promises in this psalm that you will have freedom from death and plague, right? Verse 7 says, a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. 
The Bible often uses 10 in multiples of 10, like 1,000 or 10,000, in order to describe a really large amount from a human perspective. Well, as Israel trekked through the wilderness, they remembered the death that they had seen in Egypt. They had seen a thousand fall. They had seen 10,000 fall. They remember what happened to the firstborn sons. It's not going to come near those who dwell in the secret place. And then in verse 16, there's this promise of long life. And so again, you read that and you're like, man, long life? Does that mean that people who would die an early death didn't dwell in the secret place? Does this mean that, again, if we just believe enough, nothing bad will ever happen? The key to avoiding a bad name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel reading of this passage is found in verse 10. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. Those eight English words clear up any misunderstanding and should send us out of here, fired up about the incredible opportunity of peace for our souls. Pay attention to what is said in verse 10 and what is not said. No evil shall befall you. He doesn't say affliction. He says evil. He does not say affliction. So the Lord does not promise that we are going to be affliction free. No. What he's promising is that for those who dwell in the secret place, evil will not be our ruin. Evil wants to quarrel with us. Satan wants to see suffering become an argument in our heart about the goodness of God. That was his nasty intention with our brother Job, right? He wanted Job to curse God and die. But we read Genesis 50-20 and we see Joseph saying, As for you, you meant evil against me. So there are people who meant evil against him, right? His brothers. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so here's what we have to understand as those who want to dwell in the secret place. God is using our affliction to keep us dwelling in his shelter and abiding in his shadow. Even that which the world would turn in on us, even that which the world would mean as evil for us, God takes and says, no, I work all things together for the good of my people. And even if the world means it for evil, I will use it as an affliction to keep my people in the secret place with me. Church, I know that you are bleeding. I know that you have cancer. I know that you have financial woes. Some of you have a difficult boss and a wearisome job. Some of you are widows and widowers, and this time of year is brutal. Some of you are widows and widowers who are experiencing your first Christmas without your spouse. You have chronic pain in your bodies. You have depression. 
You have dark nights of the soul. Nobody really understands it, you feel like, but you. You have anxiety. You have panic attacks. You have sorrow. You have autoimmune diseases. You have a perishing body. Psalm 91 is not promising that the secret place is going to keep you from experiencing those things. And you're not experiencing those things because you lack faith. Instead, this psalm is promising that if you would hold fast and you call out that that affliction you experience, you will go through it beneath the shadow of His wings. He's promising that He will be your defender and your protector through it and He will be your deliverer and your fear destroyer and your avenger and your savior and your Emmanuel. And that He will actually take the affliction and work it for your good so that you would experience Him as those things even more. So that you would dwell even more. I mentioned this verse earlier, but I'll read it again. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What's the good that Paul's referring to? Well, he says it in the very next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The good that he is working for you is to make you more like Christ. So you would have even more intimacy with the Father in the secret place. So that you would call out on him more. So that you would trust him more. So that like Christ, you abide in the shadow of the Father. My father-in-law is a non-staff pastor, a lay pastor at his church, Old Powhatan Baptist. He preached a sermon this summer that stuck with me and he said, you have to trust that whatever God is protecting you from with affliction is worse than what you are experiencing in affliction. Meaning, we have to trust that whatever God is protecting us from, it would seek to grab us by the scruff of our neck and drag us out of the secret place. And he says, absolutely not. I will use affliction to keep my child in the secret place so that he would cling to me more, dwell more, remain in my shadow. And those who dwell in the secret place and trust in the Lord as their refuge, they understand this. They say, this suffering is bad, but if it's protecting me from something that would have taken me out of the secret place, well then it's worth it. Now maybe you say, well, that's great. But what about this idea that death will not come near us and that we're going to have long life? Maybe you would ask, doesn't God's affliction actually bring some lives to what we would deem to be an early end? Was Psalm 91 true for Bonhoeffer when the Nazis killed him for plotting against Hitler? Was Psalm 91 true for Ulrich Zwingli as he was killed on the battlefield protecting his homeland? Was Psalm 91 true for Jim Elliot as arrows literally pierced his chest? Arrows from the Alka Indians that he was seeking to evangelize. The answer to the question of doesn't God's affliction actually bring some lives 
to what we would deem to be an early end? The answer is yes. At some point, there is an affliction that God brings into your life that ends your life unless the Lord Jesus comes back first. And for some, it comes early, and for some, it comes later. But understand that if you're dwelling in the secret place, you just go from secret place to secret place. You go from dwelling to dwelling, from shadow to shadow. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The man that I call my dead pastor, Thomas Watson, I read him every day. He died praying in his prayer closet, and Charles Spurgeon said he probably didn't even know he died. Just went from the presence of God to the presence of God. He may not, Charles Spurgeon joked, he said he may still not know that he is dead. Though thousands fall at every side, the second death will not touch those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is the long life offered in verse 16. And it's so much better than physical years. You might get nine, you might get 90. But use those years living and dwelling in the secret place, abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. And then one day you will have life forever under the reign of God's glorious Son. And you will always be in the secret place and there will be no threat to remove you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is said by the same apostle who said all things work together for our good. I'm going to ask the band to come back up now to close us out. As they do, I just want to point out to you that during non-Advent months, We end our services here with a benediction. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans 16.20 Satan the prowling lion. Satan the serpent. Well with that in mind, I just want to look at one final verse from Psalm 91 verse 13 as we close. What is the promise to those who dwell in the secret place? You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The day is coming, church. Trust in Jesus Christ. Enter the secret place. Hold fast to Him in love. By trusting and obeying His word. Call out to Him in faith. Abide in the shadow of the Almighty. No affliction is wasted there. Death has no power there. And one day, we with our Lord Jesus will stomp on the head of Satan. And he and death and sin and hell and misery will be gone forever. But until that day, stay in the secret place. Because there is peace there in the presence of God. Father, we need this this morning. We need this. I think of Samuel Rutherford writing to his friends and saying, please pray for my poor dying church. It wasn't dying in numbers the way that we talk about dying churches today. He was talking about spiritually. They were suffering. 
Well, Lord, be with our poor dying church. We love you, Lord. But this is a tough, tough road at times. The battlefield of the mind, the battlefield of the body, fighting enemies of the gospel without fighting the enemy of the gospel within, that is our sinful flesh. Lord, we need you to be our deliverer, our avenger, our fear destroyer, our refuge, our fortress, our defender and protector, our Emmanuel. We praise you that if we would dwell in the secret place and abide in the shadow of the Almighty, we will find you to be all of those things to us. We will have the peace that we long for. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we are at the throne of grace right now praying by his blood. And as we leave here, Lord, we do not leave the secret place. For wherever we go, if we dwell and we abide, we are in your presence. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. What I said at the beginning is true. The key to entering the secret place.